Well, if you would, open your Bible to John chapter 10. And while you're turning there, remember the, the old words of the great psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's amazing to me that on this day, at this particular moment in human history, and at this particular moment in the life of our church, that the Lord has providentially led us to the passage that declares, I am the good shepherd. The divine orchestration of events, the sheer number of decisions and actions that would have to come together to be here on this day is utterly staggering. And it points to the reality that he is shepherding us. He is the one ultimately leading us. Over the years, I've been blessed to have the vantage point that I do, where I get to see the Lord working in our midst with great depth and detail, where it's abundantly evident to me that he is the one sovereignly directing the affairs of this church. And now, more than ever, his shepherd care is evident to you. Where you can see he is shepherding us through this season, that he is with us, leading us, and protecting us. Of course, we don't know what the future holds, but he does. And he is the good shepherd. Let's read the text before us, John 10, verses 11 to 18. These are the words of our Lord, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Jesus has been speaking figuratively. And in the process, has been distinguishing himself from the false shepherds of Israel. So what has he said so far? He has said, the true shepherd of the sheep enters by the door. The true shepherd is authorized and has rightful access to the sheep. The doorkeeper opens up to him and the sheep know his voice and follow him. And this in contrast to thieves and robbers who climb up some other way and pursue the sheep out of self-interest and a lack of genuine concern. Then, modifying the, the picture a little bit, he has also said he is the door to the sheep. That those authorized to access the sheep must enter through him. And that all who attempt to access the sheep some other way are thieves and robbers. And so the sheep won't listen to them. And then he modifies the picture further by saying he is the door for the sheep. That one must enter through him to belong to the fold and be saved. The thief merely comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And though the, the figure of speech will persist, Jesus now speaks in language somewhat more plain, at least from the vantage point of being this side of the cross where hindsight is twenty twenty, And he declares truths that define him as the good shepherd. And so it's only natural that we would frame this around that theme. We're going to see five truths that define the good shepherd. Five truths that define the good shepherd. And if you're taking notes, the first is this, the excellence of the shepherd. The excellence of the shepherd. Look at verse 11. Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. This is now the fourth I am statement of John's gospel. And let, let me remind you again of the statements thus far. In John 6, 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. And by that he means he is the bread that produces eternal life. He is the source of everlasting life. In John 8, 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Which is to say that they will have the light that produces eternal life. In John 10, 7 and 9, Jesus declares, I am the door. Which, as just mentioned, means he's both the door to the sheep, as well as the door for the sheep, whereby even those authorized to shepherd the sheep must have entered through him and been saved themselves or be found an imposter. And now in John 10, 11, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. And I want you to see four features 
of this statement. Let's break this down a little bit into its component parts. One, the statement begins, I am. That makes this a statement of identity. Jesus is making a statement about who he is. He's disclosing and revealing himself to us. Two, he doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. That makes this statement a statement of exclusivity. There can only be one good shepherd, and Jesus declares himself to be that shepherd. Three, I think we can say implicitly this is a statement that claims deity because Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. And as Jesus says elsewhere, no one is good except God alone, Mark 10, 18. And therefore, by declaring he is the good shepherd, he is declaring that he is God. Which is critical in the context of exclusivity because the exclusivity of Jesus as the good shepherd can't rule out God the Father who is also the good shepherd. And so for the exclusivity to hold true, Jesus must be co-equally God with the Father, where Jesus is God the Son. In fact, look at verse 30, a climactic statement, really the, the climactic statement of this entire discourse. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. He's claiming to be one with the Father, claiming not just to be united with the Father, but be co-equal with the Father. In fact, you know that from verse 31 and following, because the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, "I I showed you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew that when he said he is one with the Father, that it was a claim to deity. And four, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. where shepherd describes his care and character toward us. He's our protector. He's our provider. He is committed to our highest good. And this comes out in the next statement of verse 11, where Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now stop for a moment. That's not what you would expect. Under normal circumstances, death to the shepherd would leave the sheep exposed and vulnerable. It would put them in harm's way and and make it easy for the wolf to have access to them. But that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. He has his own death in view. And that becomes evident as these verses progress because we know in verse 17, for example, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. A clear reference to his death and resurrection. And note, he lays down his life for the sheep. For means on behalf of or for the sake of. This is the language of substitution. 
Jesus dies in the place of his sheep, a death that secures their eternal good. And so Jesus doesn't merely risk his life for the sheep. Instead, he lays it down for them in death. And it goes again without saying, Jesus is alluding to his crucifixion where he offered himself once for all in atonement for sin. And doing so met the greatest need of his sheep because it was their sin that alienated them from God and sentenced them to eternal judgment. And so to remove their sin and bring about reconciliation with God, he died in their place, receiving in himself the unmitigated wrath of God where the Father treated his only begotten Son as though he had committed their sin, judging him in their place. all with a view toward removing their guilt and crediting them with the perfect, unblemished, unblemished righteousness of Christ so that they would stand holy and blameless before him. Now, when Jesus made atonement for sin, you need to understand he didn't die for everyone. And that may be nowhere more evident than right here in John chapter 10. Jesus laid down his life specifically for the sheep. And as we've already read, he knows his own and his own know him and they hear his voice and follow him. In fact, he declares in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All. And so the Father gives to the Son all whom the Father has marked out for eternal life. And all who are bound up in that gift are the sheep. And Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. And when the sheep hear his voice, they believe on him and are saved. But Jesus only dies for the sheep. And that becomes evident in verse 24 and following. Look at it with me. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And he's been telling them the entire time. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The reason the, the Pharisees do not believe is that they aren't of the sheep. And if they aren't of the sheep, then Jesus didn't die for them since Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And that means this, there is an entire category of people for whom Jesus did not die. And that category is made up of all those who don't believe and die in their sin. And they don't believe because they aren't of the sheep, and they aren't of the sheep because they weren't included in the Father's gift that was given to the Son. Now, here's the beauty of that. 
If you've heard the voice of the Savior and have responded in saving faith, then you need to know that when Christ died and rose again, he didn't merely make your salvation possible. Instead, he actually accomplished it. He died for you and atoned for your particular sins actually received in himself the judgment for your sin, drank the cup of the Father's wrath for your transgressions. And that means his sacrifice wasn't impersonal. It was personal. He laid down his life to give you life. And that's why he's the excellent shepherd, the true and supreme shepherd, because he infallibly and actually accomplishes the salvation of his sheep. He dies to secure their everlasting good, and he accomplishes that end. There are going to be no missing sheep on the last day. Every single one whom the Father marked out for salvation, Jesus died for and will be with all of the redeemed when we stand in the presence of our Lord and Savior. This is the excellence of the shepherd. If you're taking notes, jot down second, the concern of the shepherd. And this is seen in contrast to the hired hand. Look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Now some say the hired hand here refers to the religious leaders, but that's almost giving them too much credit. The religious leaders weren't hired hands. They were imposters. They were thieves and robbers. And so it seems better to see the hired hand as a, a bit more neutral. He, he isn't wicked per se. He's just there to earn his wage. He isn't the owner. He's employed by the owner. And in that sense, he's marked by self-interest and therefore self-preservation. How do we know that? Because when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees. He's not going to put his life on the line to protect the sheep. When he sees that wolf come, he's out of there. He isn't willing to risk his life. He isn't there for the well-being of the sheep. He is there to get paid. He wants his wage, and that's it. And so he abandons the sheep, and the wolf snatches some and scatters the rest, and Jesus sums this all up in verse 13 when he says he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. You see, built into the idea of concern is ownership. The hired hand isn't concerned for the sheep because they aren't his. They belong to another, to the one who hired him. And so if he walks away, at most he walks away from a job, but otherwise he loses nothing. He doesn't share the concern of the owner. 
And this is in stark contrast to who? The good shepherd. Because he doesn't merely risk his life for the sheep, he dies for them, lays down his life for them because he's the owner of the sheep. And I want to be clear at this juncture that there is only one good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. But his shepherd care is to be reflected in the shepherd care of pastors. In fact, one of the ways that the Lord shepherds his people is through the agency of his under-shepherds. And so faithful shepherds aren't hirelings. Faithful pastors aren't hirelings. And yet, sadly, there are many hired hands who simply hold a position, get a paycheck, put little effort into the preaching of God's word, aren't concerned for the well-being of the flock, love their comfort, see pastoral ministry as merely a job, go into pastoral ministry because it seems like it's an easy life. In fact, on the basis of credible witness, I can tell you there are pastors who are enjoying the so-called pandemic. And they're enjoying it because they're getting a break. In some cases, they aren't seeing their people at all. And in fact, some prefer it this way. There are churches as I understand it, that are going to go live stream permanently. This is the new normal for them. That's a hireling. It's not a pastor. And I would hate to be in the shoes of a hireling like that on the, the day of judgment. Now, in saying that, I want to be very, very clear. There are good and godly men who are handling the pandemic differently than we are, men I love and respect. I'm not talking about them. They're still shepherding their people. I might wish they were handling things differently, but I'm not talking about them. They are not hirelings. I'm talking about pastors who are pastor in name only, who are self-centered, consumed with self-interest, and aren't concerned for the well-being of the sheep. And in many cases... They aren't because they have failed themselves to enter through the door and they don't know the Lord either. And this, of course, in stark contrast to the good shepherd who is deeply concerned for the well-being of his sheep. I mean, just think, if you're in Christ, then not only has Jesus laid down his life for you, but he shepherds you all the way to glory, providing you with daily sustenance, providing you with spiritual sustenance, being totally committed to your spiritual growth and pursuit of holiness, even supplying you with specific trials that are marked out for you to expose your particular weaknesses, that he can strengthen those areas of your life, and then even supplies the needed grace to endure those trials and to grow in the midst of them, caring for even the, the smallest and seemingly insignificant aspects of our lives, though we oftentimes take it for granted. And even the difficult things of life, he guarantees will work for our good and his glory. He loves his sheep. He tenderly cares for them. 
He, he ministers to them. He's attentive to their needs. God even declares in the Psalms that he counsels his people with his eye upon them. He is with his sheep. We couldn't overstate the concern of the shepherd. Deeply concerned for the well-being of his sleep, his sheep. And now third, if you're taking notes, jot down this, the knowledge of the shepherd. The knowledge of the shepherd. And this is one of those examples in John where Jesus says something so profound and yet so simple, and to get our, our arms around it, it's going to require that we, we think just a little bit, and so I need you to dial in with me just a little bit here. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. To know here speaks to both intimate and experiential knowledge, one that is often closely related to love and is even used with respect to the way a husband knows his wife and the one flesh union. And I think the marriage union helps us here because I believe the, the truth, the, the doctrine underlying the knowledge being referenced here is our union with Christ. Because Christ's knowing of us and our knowing of him is analogous to the relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at verse 15. Even as or just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So the Father's knowledge of the Son and the Son's knowledge of the Father mirror Christ's knowledge of us and our knowledge of him. Now, that's challenging to process at that point in time. Why? Because the Father knows the Son perfectly, and the Son knows the Father perfectly. And we would certainly acknowledge that Christ knows us perfectly. He's omniscient, but our knowledge of him is imperfect. Even our intimacy, our relationship, our, our experiential knowledge of Christ is, is imperfect. And so I think we have to ground the, the knowledge here into something objective, an established reality that out of which can, can, can birth the experiential knowledge and intimacy of our relationship with Christ. And we find that in our union with him. That our knowledge of Christ is rooted and grounded in the objective reality of our union with Christ. We are in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be in union with him. Romans 6 describes that reality that we were baptized into the death of Christ and raised with Christ unto newness of life. That's speaking of union and that, that union that we see in the, the, the realm of our salvation is, is, is the, pictured by the lesser in the union between a husband and his wife. And we can even say on the basis of Colossians 1.27 that Christ is in us, which Paul calls the hope of glory. In fact, in Romans 8.9, Paul says the spirit of Christ dwells in us. 
And it's this aspect of our union with Christ that mirrors the Father and the Son. Because the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And I want you to see this. Turn to John 14. A familiar portion of Scripture, but maybe looked at from a slightly different angle. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is a perfect union between the Father and the Son. And undergirding their, their knowledge of one another is this union. That the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father. And in like manner, undergirding the Son's knowledge of us, the Good Shepherd's knowledge of us and our knowledge of Him is our union with Him, that we are in Him and He is in us. In fact, we can broaden this a little bit. Turn to John 17 for a moment. This is our Lord's high priestly prayer. John 17 and verse 20, Jesus says this, and remember he's praying on behalf of his disciples who are with him, and then he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, we fall into that category. We have believed in Christ through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, not only are we in Christ, and not only is Christ in us, but we are in the Father, and the Father is in us. And you see similar language used as well in John 14, 23. We're again in a conversation, the same one we read a moment ago. Jesus answered, verse 23, and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And so when Jesus says that he knows his own, that is, his own know him, just as the Father knows him and he knows the Father, this is all rooted and grounded in the union we have with Christ, with the Father, and we can say as well with the Spirit. And then for emphasis, end of verse 15, John 11 Jesus says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for us. 
Now, I want you to think on this for a moment. To know Christ and to be known by him is wonderful, is it not? It is the abundant life, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the abundant life is eternal life. Listen to John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To to have eternal life is to know Christ. It's to have Christ. That is eternal life, the abundant life. And since our knowledge of Christ is inseparably linked to our union with him, an objective reality, both the intimacy and experience of knowing him will continue to grow and deepen throughout all of eternity. We will never plumb the depths of God, of Christ. And that means that we have all of eternity to look forward to as we continue to grow in our relationship with him and our knowledge of him, the experiential and intimate relationship that we have with him. It will just grow and deepen and flourish because we will never be omniscient and therefore we cannot know the omniscient fully. All of eternity to grow in our knowledge of Christ, which means we have a lot to look forward to, a lot to anticipate, amen? Well, if you're taking notes, jot down fourth, the mission of the shepherd. The mission of the shepherd, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. When he says this fold, which fold is he referring to? He's speaking there to The Pharisees, he's got his disciples in the audience. The blind man is likely there as well. And he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. So what's the fold there? What is this fold there? It's it's ethnic Israel. It's the covenant people of God, which was largely apostate at that time and is largely apostate to this day. And so Jesus has sheep that don't belong to the fold of Israel. And so when you, when you put this in context with John 9 and the, the blind man, you have to ask yourself, what is Jesus then doing? He's coming to the flock of Israel, and he's calling out his own from among them. He's calling out his sheep from among Israel, of which the blind man is one, summon, summonsing them to life calling them out of apostate Israel to himself. You see, within the the ethnic nation of Israel is elect Israel. You might call them true Israel. And when Jesus came, an aspect of his ministry was to call them out of Israel to himself. And so look again at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. And so on the one hand, Jesus is calling out his 
true sheep among apostate Israel. And he has other sheep that are not of that fold. You say, well, what's that referring to? Those who don't belong to Israel. The nations. And so there's the fold of Israel, and Jesus is calling out his own from among them, and there's another fold, the nations, and Jesus is going to call them out of the world to himself as well. Verse 16, next part, it says there, I must bring them also. Notice, sheep don't bring themselves. The shepherd goes and gets the sheep, and he summons the sheep unto himself, and the sheep hear his voice and follow him. Next part of verse 16, and they will hear my voice. That's the effectual call. A divine and efficacious summons to enter through the door and be saved, one that imparts the very life needed to respond to the call itself. Next part of verse 16, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So if you're seeing this, there's two flocks, Israel and the world, and Jesus is calling his people out of both to join a new flock. It was too small a thing that Christ would raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. He was also made a light to the nations so that salvation would reach the end of the earth, Isaiah 49.6. And this was always foreseen since through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, And we've seen it in John's gospel where John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And when the Samaritans came to believe in him, they confessed this one is indeed the Savior of the world. But that Jew and Gentile would become one flock, that was not foreseen. And let me just show you this, and and you're familiar with it, many of you, but Ephesians 2. Jesus creates a new flock, as it were. And Paul really spells this out in Ephesians 2. Verse 11 and following, therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Jesus takes Jew and Gentile, calls them unto himself, and makes a new man. Having established peace. And Paul 
adds to this in chapter 3 and verse 4 by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mission of the shepherd. The mission of the shepherd was to come and to call his people out from among Israel and to come and call his people out from among the world and to join them into one new flock under him, the good shepherd, and lead them to glory. And so the mission of the shepherd is to gather his elect from among every tongue, tribe, and nation. And because his atoning work infallibly accomplishes his mission, as the gospel goes forth, they will hear his voice and be saved, joining the one flock under him, the good shepherd. And that leads us lastly to the prerogative of the shepherd to the prerogative of the shepherd. You'll see this in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Now again, we have to wrestle with this a little bit, because with this statement it might seem like the Father's love was on hold until Jesus had died and rose again. But remember, when Jesus said this, that hadn't happened yet, and the Father's love here is expressed in the present tense. There was never a time when the Father didn't love the Son, John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, John 5.20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And Jesus dying and rising from the grave was settled in eternity past. In the council of the Trinity when the plan of redemption was settled and the the Son was commissioned for his saving work. And it's in that sense. The Father's love for the Son is eternally linked to the Son's mission. And his total infallible commitment to carry it out such that there was never any question as to whether or not the mission would be completed and therefore eternal, uninterrupted love between the Father and the Son. And that the Son would unfailingly accomplish the mission was bound up in his prerogative. Look at verse 18. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I mean, this is so critical for people to understand. Jesus dying on the cross wasn't plan B, nor was he providing some kind of example that we were to follow in as the means by which we would secure salvation. Jesus going to the cross was the plan from before the foundation of the world. That was the the, the plan of redemption. That was the, the plan God had put in place to redeem his people. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there willingly, He went to accomplish the the will his father had given him to accomplish. He could have called on a legion of angels and the father would have delivered him. But he went to the cross by his own will, 
went to the cross to fulfill the the work that had been given to him by the Father to lay down his life on his own initiative, which means from himself. It was in accordance with the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, there were human means. Yes, the, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel were involved in that, and Pilate was involved in that, but God was orchestrating the whole thing. Next part of verse 18, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He has the right to lay down his life. He has the right to take it up again. It is his prerogative to do so, and it is, at the end of verse 18, because this commandment I received from my Father. Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life on his own initiative. It was not imposed on him. It was not forced upon him. His life was not taken from him. He went to the cross and died for his sheep. It was his prerogative. And that's what adds to the reality that he's the good shepherd, the the excellent shepherd. Because only a good, faithful, and excellent shepherd would be willing to do that for his sheep. And so the question for, for you here today, especially if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, is have you heard the voice of the shepherd? You know, it's conceivable that this entire time that I've been preaching from this portion of Scripture, there is someone in our midst, maybe someone tuned in online that is hearing the voice of the shepherd for the first time, the voice of the shepherd calling that one to come unto him, to believe on him and to trust in him. If you are hearing the voice of the shepherd through the preached word, then it's time to respond to the shepherd to recognize that if you reject the shepherd, you will die in your sins. Spend an eternity of eternities under the judgment of God, the condemnation of God for your transgressions, your violations of the law. And if you would search your conscience in this moment, you would know and recognize that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know in your heart of hearts that you have done wrong. And you are, you are destined for that punishment, destined for that guilt. And it would be justice for, for punishment to be brought against you on account of that sin. But the Father has commissioned his Son to come into the world, to take upon himself human flesh, to live under the law, fulfill it in every respect, be tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And then he went to the cross and he died upon that cross for the sins of all who would ever believe on his name. And he died and he rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God. And if you would turn from your sin and believe on him, you will be saved. Imputed with the righteousness of Christ, your sins entirely forgiven, joined to the Savior as we've been discussing this time. And you will have the hope of heaven before you. We're like those of us who are already in Christ. You have an eternity of eternities, not not in judgment, 
but rather to grow in your experiential and intimate knowledge of the Good Shepherd. And so if you hear his voice this day, do not harden your hearts. Behold, now is the time of salvation. Today is the day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's almost unfortunate that our time in the scriptures has to come to an end. There's almost a sense in which the world sort of stops in this time. It's a wonderful distraction from all that's happening in the world today. But our shepherd is good. He will care for us. He is concerned for us. He loves us. He is with us. And he will shepherd us all the way home. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you. What a blessing to be in the Word. Thank you for this portion of Scripture that you have given by your Spirit. Thank you for the Apostle John and his writing this gospel for us. Father, we thank you for the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that as we see him, we see you. And so in that sense, you are as much the Good Shepherd as he is. And we thank you for the way You shepherd us, and you love us, and you care for us. And Father, we would ask that even now as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would richly bless this time, that you would assist us and enable us to savor it, and even to glorify yourself all over again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.